This is the Marathon 8th episode of the Genius Podcast Series. But if you want to be in line for a prize that I'm offering, you have to listen closely because somewhere in this episode, I have embedded a question for you. Enjoy this episode. How you get your product listed at Harrods or Selfridges or Bloomingdale's or Costco or Amazon or Woolworths in Australia or any other posh shelf in the world. These are universal lessons from some of the greatest brands on breaking into new markets. So, I've got this question embedded. And if you get the question right and you email me, you will be in line to win the products that I'm talking about today because the participants have kindly agreed to donate part of what they create. Enjoy. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to your favorite podcast app. So, how do you get your product listed on some of the world's most prestigious shelves in some of the world's most prestigious stores? Well, first, it has to be the very best in its category. No discussion. Second, you have to hustle like a maniac. Third, you have to get your product to buyers and convince them to buy it. Fourth, and actually, there are just too many reasons that have to be learned to make a list rather listen to the entire episode because each one of the participants in today's episode is going to give you their wisdom and their hard lessons that they have learned over many years. And bear in mind, not all products are suited to being listed, but we'll get there. I've gone out and spoken to some of the best product and brand developers I know, and they've succeeded in getting their creations onto the shelves of Harrods and of Selfridges and of Waitrose and Tesco and you will get the insights on how to use Amazon to get your product to market, how to break into the lucrative U.S. West Coast market, buy a Costco, crack the elite Whole Foods market in America, serve wholesalers in Japan, and most critically, why perhaps getting your product listed at any one of these places may be the worst idea you ever had. We'll wrap it all up with a cautionary tale. But first, some lunch this time at the Polish club in London's museum land, Kensington, with a man called Karol Ostashevsky, born in London of Polish parents, who, with his South African-born wife, Laura Clacy, created Scully Cider in the Elgin Valley and quickly realised that craft cider in its home market would be a tough sell. You see, Destel, the second biggest cider maker in the world, was being bought by Heineken, the world's biggest cider maker in the world, and the market was not going to be prepared to pay up for craft cider, so they needed a new strategy. Here is how Scully got into Harrods, then into every Nando's in the UK, and also into the posh grocers of Waitrose and Tesco, and recently more than just a handful of pubs. Let's have lunch with Carol Ostashevsky of Scully. We really believed in the quality of the liquid that we were producing, and while we were making excellent headway in South Africa... We wanted to take the product to the world and we knew it had quality enough in order to succeed. So when looking to tackle the UK market, why not start at the top and work your way down? So looked at Harrods, decided to connect with the senior buyer there, sent him a sample, got an interview. And before we knew it, we were the first cider listed at Harrods in over a decade. So a great, you know, string in our boat. But that's massively unusual. And I think much to the, 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 the chagrin of competitors. People must look at you and say, hold on a second, getting an appointment at Harrods is one thing, getting listed is quite another. And you succeeded in that, then followed by the likes of Waitrose and Nando's. Did the South African connection with Nando's help? 
certainly I think what Nando strives to do is is really stand for for heritage provenance and Scully really represents both of those things we've got a, a really strong story based on where we source our apples from which is obviously South Africa which connected and resonated with the Nando's buyers but I tell you that that was not a, an overnight success Rome was certainly not built in a day in that instance it took me three and a half years of hustling sending emails to buyers trying to get in touch with the right people to to convince them to tell them try this product you'll love it and it's only really back in October that that we managed to get that national listing but we are getting some phenomenal reports in terms of what it's managed to do for their cider sales and sales of alcohol in general South Africa with Distel is the world's second biggest producer of cider after Heineken which just bought Distel South Africa doesn't have a big craft cider following simply because in the premium craft cider the price point is twice as high as the mass market stuff and I suppose that's why the UK market is that more attractive much higher GDP per capita and therefore people have got money to spend and it's not really just the GDP component I think there is an appreciation of premium craft products in the UK in general which sort of paved a pathway for us to kind of follow in those footsteps so for example, in the craft beer space here in the UK, you've got brands such as Beavertown, Camden Hells, Brewdog, brands who have really pushed the price point of beer up to a higher level over and above the mainstream. We were then able to use a lot of the learnings from how those brands succeeded in the UK and apply them to our Scully strategy. How does the name Scully go down? S-X-O-L-L-I-E... It's got a South African heritage, it's lovely and makes complete sense in South Africa. How has that transcended borders? So I'm not a marketeer. My part of the business is more on the commercial end. But what I've always found is I like the idea of zig and zag. So when they zig, I like to zag. And, you know, some people do say, you know, how does Scully land? Well, I can tell you it lands very well. It's exotic, it's different, and it certainly propels itself on the shelf Yet you're in a market which has got French imports and Brittany is well-renowned and Normandy are well-renowned as cider producers. They've got centuries of history making cider. The United Kingdom, Somerset is the big apple kingdom and there's a huge amount of cider. Then there's the global brands of Bulmers and Magnus. How do you drive a wedge into such an established market as a complete outsider? I think one of the major problems in the UK is the weather. And a lot of things that we lack here in the UK is sunshine. And by being a South African brand, we can bring that promise and that flavor of sunshine through our product and through our provenance. So being a South African product gives us an exoticism, which maybe France or Somerset don't quite offer in terms of the brands that sit on the UK shelves currently. And you're also doing single varietal ciders too. You're not blending lots of different apples in to try and get a taste profile. You're doing Granny Smith. You're doing Golden Delicious Apples. You're doing, help me out, your Pink, Pink Lady. And the apples themselves have got a naturally high sugar content. So you're not adding sugar to these products, which are then from a, everybody's talking about ESG and wants to be more environmentally conscious and socially aware and have their governance sorted out. You get really high marks in terms of your carbon footprint based on the fact that this has got no added sugar. Sugar's got a massive carbon footprint. That, that, that is exactly right. And it talks to the sunshine I mentioned. So by having apples grown in the sunshine means our apples have got a fructose content, which is good enough in order not to need to add any sucrose. And exactly as you say, we don't need to add any additional sugar to our product. 
which means that UK producers who need to add sugar not only to lift the alcohol content to a level to make it a decently alcoholic product, they also need to add sugar when they're back sweetening their products to make it palatable to a consumer. So through that argument alone, we are able to demonstrate a carbon footprint which is lower than our UK competitors. And carbon is one, obviously, component of sugar, but the other component is obviously the the soil damage that the growing of sugarcane has. So it's really a twofold impact that sugar has on the environment, and Scully is able not to use that and so protect that. Yet your cider is made at a at a wine farm Correct. called Almenkerk, which is on the N2 highway. As you go out of Cape Town, you've got Elgin and Hrabo on the left-hand side, world-famous apple-growing areas. You take a right into the back of beyond, into the hills, and the home of Appletizer. And you're making it there. You are putting it initially into great big plastic bags, big fat pop sucks, if you like. You now shifted that to stainless steel containers. And then you ship it all the way on a boat, all the way around Africa, all the way around the belt, all the way up to Liverpool, of all places, where you then bottle it and gas it and then distribute it. And that's still got a lower carbon footprint than sugar-added local ciders. Correct. I mean, it was very interesting. My partner and co-founder in this business, Laura, who happens to be my wife as well, she, she was part of the nascent sustainability team in Johannesburg at KPMG. So she's got a very strong background in sustainability and she's always evangelized about the importance of ESG and sustainability before it became sexy and a buzzword. So she's always been kind of tapping me on the shoulder on it. One of the interesting findings we found was that the transport of the cider, of the liquid, from South Africa to Liverpool in a big shipping container on a big ship which has a number of different containers was the equivalent of a truck going 200 kilometers in the UK. That I suppose answers all you need yeah. to know in terms of the difference between the environmental impact of a, a tanker versus stuff getting transported around the UK. That's Carol Ostoshevsky at Scully. Now for a company you've never heard of making something you've probably never sampled. The business is called DC Foods, founded by a guy called Marnie Moritz, a former general manager of a frozen fruit juice business in Ceres in the Western Cape with customers in Japan. When that arrangement ended, Marnie kept the connections and the customers and went into business for himself and rethought the business completely. Nowadays, about 20% of the DC Foods business serves quick frozen fruit segments into the Japanese market. Frozen grapefruit and orange segments are dispatched to Japan on a regular basis in massive containers, and later they get added to breakfast jellies consumed by commuters in some of the world's biggest and busiest cities. That story on its own is a big one, but the real gem is a prepared frozen fruit sorbet which is made only for export, and it is called Island Way. The creamy sorbet is served in flash-frozen, hollowed-out fruit skins. The fruit skins, the same fruit skins that come from that fruit that was sent off to Japan. You could throw the fruit skins away, you could turn them into compost, but no, Mani Moritz and his team freeze them using liquid nitrogen. That becomes the bowl in which the sorbet is served. It's all done at a football field-sized factory at the Nucha Industrial Development Zone outside Kerberge in the Eastern Cape, and it's exported almost exclusively to the enormous Costco network in the United States. 
This is a business designed for export. It's a story of precision, production, of trust, of long-term, healthy relationships, knowing your customers, and a very lucky break, thanks to social media. Every year, this business sends but 400 to 450 containers of sorbet and up to 200 containers of quick-frozen fruit to Japan. That's 20 metric tons per container. This is a vast operation. Adrian Vardy, the DC Foods founder, Marnie Maritz's business partner, has lessons here on how to win customers in Japan. But first, how do you get a ready-made product from South Africa, made from fresh fruit from South Africa, into a massive US chain? The guys we'd been working with developed a relationship with a guy who owned a restaurant, and this guy's restaurant was called the Island Way Restaurant. And it was named the Island Way Restaurant because it was on a road called Island Way. So, so that's the original source of our brand. So this guy's name is Frank Shivers, and he was a real larger-than-life American character. And he, would, he just absolutely loved our product. So whenever they went to food shows, our U.S. distributors, he would just grab anyone literally and physically drag them and say, like, you've got to taste this, it's amazing. He'd literally drag people. And he saw people with Costco badges walking past, and he literally grabbed them <laughs> and somehow forced them to look at the product and to try it. So they did, and they enjoyed it. So, so that was more or less how we started off with Costco. I'm just a little unclear on the early, early start of the early connections, the friends, the connections. You kind of went in five pieces at a time, sort of sending it to people and saying, please try this, please try this, please try this, until you get to Frank Shivers, who then goes, this is the best thing I've ever had. He is the, the catalyst. Yes. So we worked in like instant drip-roaring success. I mean, we sent... If we sent three containers to America in, in six months, we thought that was fabulous. And then if we sent 11 containers in a year, we thought that was really fabulous. But until this guy, Frank Shivers, our, our volumes were relatively small because our distributors were focusing more on food service than on big club store retail markets. So that was a key, key development for us in our business. And... That business also wasn't instant big volume because the way retailers work, they will take a product in a region. So Costco in particular has eight regions and they have eight buyers for each region. So if you want to sell to a region, then you're obliged to convince the buyer in each of the respective regions that your product is a great product and then it will succeed. We started on the West Coast, which is always a very good place to start for new products because people are very open to new ideas in food. There's a lot of progressive ideas on the West Coast and generally a good place to start for a new product that's interesting and innovative. I mean, I spent three months in the USA at one stage, just going up and down, seeing buyers on the West Coast only. And because the sales developed nicely there, we slowly but surely moved into other buyers' radar. And when they saw the West Coast sales, they said, well, maybe we should give it a try. And slowly but surely, our footprint expanded. But we found that it expanded to the extent of around 50% of Costco stores. But we were very happy with that business. So at that stage, 
our ice cream business and our fruit business were more or less equal. Mm. The fruit business also grew by way of us participating in food shows and by way of reputation. So in Japan, our company has a very good reputation. And that counts for a lot. You mentioned Mani has got a very good way of dealing with the Japanese. Your reputation in Japan and our image of Japan is it's a fastidious place. It's a place we appreciate cleanliness and purity and quality and are prepared to pay for that as well. The Japanese market is, in certain respects, a very difficult market to serve because much of the business that is done there is driven on trust and not so much on, okay, give me your price, give me your volumes, a very different environment and relationships of longstanding are critical to many, many businessmen in Japan, among themselves and among their supplier base. So that's the first issue. The second issue is that Japan doesn't really import foods that are in a finished form. So they always trust only Japanese quality control for final presentation to Japanese consumers. Having said that, though, they expect you as a supplier to be able to meet their very, very high quality standards. And there's very few companies in the world that can meet them with respect to frozen fruit other than dynamic foods, DC foods. And the reason we're able to meet their requirements is because we've been doing business with Japanese customers for over 20 years. So it's a mar- like every market has got an upside and a downside. The upside of the Japanese market is that the customers are loyal. Their relationships are based on many years of dealing and on trust, which all of which we have developed. The downside is that they're very tough on quality control, but we don't see that as a downside when it comes to food. So when it's, it's anybody comes to our business or our factory and says and points out where something is not right or perhaps needs improvement, we're ecstatic to hear about it. So we get most Japanese customers send somebody from their company to inspect production while we're in the process of production. Even if we've been doing the same product for 20 years, Every year they send someone to make sure we're doing the right thing, to make sure we haven't slipped up, and to suggest improvements. And and that's something that we appreciate because it just makes our business better. You're in Costco in the United States. You're in not every store. You're in about 60% of stores in 2019, 580 Costcos. And you're doing okay. You're a summer product because it's lovely and fresh and fruity. And then the TikTok video happens. Please tell me the story of the TikTok video. Yeah, again, so that was just a pure fluke. I wish I could say that we did something that's super intelligent or super smart. But we noticed reasonably early, and I can't remember how we noticed, that our product was going viral on TikTok. So there's a, a thread on TikTok that said, TikTok made me buy and that the people then said, I don't wear sorbet. I mean, I'm sure many other products ever had similar. But we were kind of excited when it got to 3 million views. And about a year and a half later, it was up to 60 million views. And that had a, a huge impact on us. What was the video? What, 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 is, what was the backstory? The videos, like most videos on TikTok short, 
people showing the box and saying, amazing, look at what I found in Costco. I used to eat these when I was a child. And they back. Everyone ex was ecstatic that they back. But the fact is we'd been there all the time, but we were only in around half of the Costco stores. So that drove people into Costco stores to ask for Island Way Sorbet. And um, that coincided with uh, COVID. And because people weren't eating out during COVID, they were buying desserts where they would normally go to shop. And, and a lot of people didn't want to go to the shop too often. So a lot of people were going to Costco's and buying our product, which they may not otherwise have done, but for the combination of the TikTok video and COVID. That's Adrian Vardy, partner at DC Foods. Big in Japan and increasingly huge in the United States. Boosted, believe it or not, by the magic of TikTok. Coming up on Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast. Selfridges, Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's, Liberty of London, Mr. Porter. Really, really high-end stores in the UK and in the US. And they represented over 50% of our top-line revenue. So the dinner table conversation is, you must be successful because you are stocked at Felfridges in London and you're a little South African brand. So you kid yourself into thinking that that's good for the business. Until you step away and you go, well, what am I actually making? What defines genius? Brilliant mind? Unsurpassed ambition? Perhaps Lexus believes it's about something different, authenticity. This lies in the ability to follow that one thing that drives you, that one true part of who you are. That is the root of genius. And that's the authenticity you experience when you're behind the wheel of a Lexus. It's just one way that Lexus makes luxury personal. Book a test drive at your nearest Lexus dealer and experience amazing. And if you want to see how I experienced amazing with the brand new Lexus RX350 recently, click on the link in the podcast blurb. Social media also is critical in the promotion of Field Bar. Now, having sold his software business, Lee Hartman, an accountant by trading, wanted more of a creative outlet. But he also wanted to solve the problem of aesthetics and the function of cooler boxes. He had a bee in his bonnet, so he developed Field Bar. 58 pieces of carefully engineered components in a casing made from the same material as motorbike helmets. And with two years of development, he's now sold about 30,000 units around the world. He's got massive ambitions to become a luxury outdoor brand in his own right, with his two-bottle unit as the first product. Lee Hartman, who builds each cooler in a factory in Cape Town's observatory by hand, is finding traction in global markets. But it's all started at home. So we realized two things. One is that we need to use what's around us. We realized that there's maybe a million tourists that come to South Africa. So if we can get them exposed to field bar when they're here and then they see it again overseas, you know, so we make sure that we're in the wine farms, you know, we're at Kirsten Bosch, we're at the waterfront. When you say we're there, you're not doing retail there, but you're perhaps doing demonstrations. Yeah, or that there's exposure to the product, you know. So we had a German customer come in just the other day. He said he was walking down the steps of Clifton and he saw someone just walk up with a field bar and he saw the logo and he Googled it. And he came to visit us and he took it back to Germany. So like the, the seeding, you know, you have to kind of work with what's around you. That's, that's the one part. And then the other part is that we look for iconic shops or hotels or all those places and we give them a good price. 
We just make sure that we're seen in the right places. Yeah, and that's an important strategy as well. What was the big breakthrough? What was the thing that got you listed at Harrods? We went to a show in Paris called uh, Mason Dogger. It's a homeware thing, so there's no outdoor products except for us. And loads of buyers come there. They're looking for something original. The positioning story is really important. They want to know where it's made and why would you be good at doing what you do. That's really important to us. And a big lesson is like, they're thinking, okay, why would somebody from Cape Town be good at making cooler boxes? So we have to develop that story and that positioning. So the buyers go, in our case, they went immediately to that. You know, tell us your story. Why did you make it? Who makes it? How long does it take to make? They're really interested in the craft of which is why the 58 pieces yes. that are individually made and then individually locked together and into the final product. And again, the fact that you're obsessive about the fact you make it in Cape Town, in a factory, in a, the suburb of Observatory is important to you, but it would also be important to them. No, definitely. They're looking for products with stories, you know, genuine, authentic stories. So we spoke a lot about how many people were employed, the fact that they were unemployed, like, they also want to feel good about what they're buying. So not only is it aesthetically pleasing and it's premium, you know, Harrods is a very big store, but they don't like to sell anything that's too cheap. <laughs> so, so they were saying, well, how do we add more value to it? You know, so we put in a longer handle. And they've been amazing. They, they're giving us a lot of insights into products that they're looking for but can't find. So we're working with them to fill those gaps. It becomes the, the sort of lucky break, if you like, but it's a highly strategic approach. You didn't hunt Harrods. They came to you within that environment because you've got to be in the right place at the right time to meet the right people. I think that was you know, his pivotal in this process. You know, those shows are very scary. You know, you're taking your baby to an international place. To, a, to essentially a baby to a beauty culture. Yeah, that's exactly. That's a very good analogy. So we set up our stand. The stand looked great, but we were doing it on a budget. We took everything in kind of big suitcases. And the show opened at 9 o'clock on the Thursday. And the first few people just walked right past. And they were like, oh, no. <laughs> but pretty soon, people started to stop. And we had crowds around us. And we couldn't speak French. And we were like, the, the stand from next door came and helped us a little bit. And they were, they were a big Italian pasta machine brand. And the owner came up to us and just said, look, he's never seen such interest at a first-time exhibitor, you know? So you make friends there, and they helped us a lot. And then Harrods came along, and Nordstrom came along, so we're still talking to them. So, yeah, I mean, a bit of a lucky break. And how hard is it to satisfy a Harrods, for example, in, in terms of it? They like the product. That's yeah. very good. But then your servicing of them as the client has got to be absolutely pristine too. Yeah, and it's very interesting dealing with Harrods. You know, they actually sent us our orders by post. <laughs> they, they, and we were like, you know, it's a beautiful stationery, but we like didn't check our post for a long time. So, Well, I, I got a Christmas card sent from the UK mid-November 2022 in April 2023. Yes, so they, now they have uh, virtually set us up on email so we're getting it through. Look, they're, they're very discerning. I don't think like a food product, we didn't have to go through such big audits. You have to go and train people. So we actually have an employee in our London office that goes and does the merchandising and helps them. And they're very particular about how they describe products. They like to use their own words. But yeah, they've been amazing and actually really gentle, you know, with us. You hear these horror stories of their big black bullies, but they're actually not. They're, they're really trying to help you. 
you've got it in other outlets as well in other parts of the world. Yeah, we're more in um, like smaller retail stores at the moment. So we've just set up our warehouse in the Netherlands. It took forever to get through the admin, death by admin, I call it. Mm -hmm. So we're sending out to a couple of really nice department stores in Germany and one or two in France. So yeah, it's starting slow. But that's the point. This is a slow process. There is no wonder how great your product is, no matter how brilliant it is, no matter how unique it is in the world. It does take walking through concrete to get to a point, to a tipping point, I suppose, where you get that break, which becomes a catalyst for for the rest of it. But it can take years. Uh, It can. Our board spends a lot of time on this. I think Probably the number one goal of strategy is to determine how fast you want to grow. You know, so we want to grow at a steady pace, not at a crazy pace. That's also because we're still learning to scale our production. So Nordstrom, for example, you know, they want ten thousand units, which we which we can't give them right. We're looking to to manage that and say, well, how do we do smaller quantities? You know, so we're going to do a combination of online. One of the reasons why I decided to do this business was because of things like Shopify. Instagram and third-party warehouses, which enable us, like somebody can order a field bar in the UK and our website emails the warehouse and the warehouse pick it and ship it and we don't even know. We just see the alert. That kind of automation means that we don't need a distributor. But that's fundamentally changed in the access to market. Yes, because you don't need to go to a distributor. You don't need to give away all your margin. You don't have to send excessive numbers of units. You can actually do it quite slowly. The biggest secret here is to get into the face of the consumer to make them want to pay money for something that they're not held in their hands. Yes. You know, the the nice thing about this is that it has a real-world customer acquisition loop. So somebody in the UK takes it to a party, other people see it in real life, and then they Google it. That's where almost all our sales come from. And you can actually see it moving from town to town. And there we can see suddenly getting a lot of orders in a very tight area. And it's because there's a couple of people there that are going around and socializing with the product. That's Lee Hartman, the owner and founder of Field Bar, redefining outdoor luxury. Well, in Roman times, salt was as scarce and as valuable as gold. So how did Sam Skyring, somebody who came from the NGO sector, convince Whole Foods in the United States to carry yet another bottle of salt. But it all starts deep under the Kalahari Desert, where underground streams meet mineral-rich soils, and that creates one of the very few salts in the world untainted by plastic and other pollutants in the ocean, where additives are not required to give it its crystal-white appearance, and the fact that it's got a renewable angle to it grabbed buyers' attention immediately at Whole Foods. But it's also a story of how to use LinkedIn like a champion. Have a listen to the great background story of Oryx Desert Salts, Sam Skyring. I went to my first trade show in the USA. First show, you end up third floor in the back corner of the back corner. So very frustrating. Tried to go around and find a buyer. In fact, I did. I would look for the labels and, and, and introduce myself and try and get contacts. Fortunately, before I went to the expo, I had been part of a entrepreneur's organization and I had the opportunity to pitch into the international market. So I used LinkedIn, love LinkedIn, and LinkedIn has been my platform for creating a network on the other side of the world. But you've done it with precision and strategy and targeting people. 
So you pay the subscription, I yes, take it. I do. So, but this is very important. Yeah. There's a lot of people trying to do the freebie thing, but actually paying the subscription is worthwhile. It is, absolutely. Yeah. The fact that you can get to a buyer in a country, in a particular company, and send them a direct message and introduce yourself, that's phenomenal. So when you do that, mm. how do they respond? So I've managed to build my network now up to 8,500 people. 6,500 were me. I now have somebody else doing it for me. Late at night, I used to get linked tinnitus because I just spent too much time. Felt almost like a jackpot. Like who, which buyer would see me, would respond and would connect to what I was putting out. And I always targeted people within the food industry. So 90% of my network is in the food in the USA, bloggers, editors, media, and so on. And often they accept your invite, but then don't necessarily engage or respond to the messages I was putting out. When you're messaging yeah. something like LinkedIn, is it a sales pitch? Is it an education pitch? Is it a lifestyle pitch? How do you pitch a product, which is Oryx Desert Soap, which is very specific. Yeah. So I would give the specifics of what it was, an alternative to sea salt and where it comes from, and it's pristine and mineral-rich and sustainable and renewable. So I never did a, a single post on LinkedIn until I got into the USA. For me, it was, I didn't want to tell everybody because, well, where can they buy it? You, know, you can't brag about something where it's not available. So my strategy was... For five years, literally, I built my network. One day when I launch in the USA, I will have a network to pitch to. And then I started the storyteller. Um, so then, then you start dropping into people's feeds and they start seeing what I love about LinkedIn is that people go in with a professional hat, but they want to know the person behind the brand, the personality behind the brand. And so you can be very vulnerable and very truthful, well, you need to be on LinkedIn, so that people really understand who you are and what your brand's all about. So fortunately at the expo, I received the email address from somebody I networked with. Now you use the word fortunately. This is not fortunate. No, this no. is five no, years no. of deliberate, <laughs> but, but deliberate hunting down yeah. a single contact. <laughs> okay, so it's nothing fortunate about it. <laughs> yes, true. everything coalesced at that point and you then get the address, right? Yes. And wrote to the buyer after I left the trade show. Didn't hear anything back. The problem often with entrepreneurs is they get so busy working in their business. Bring in COVID. Thank you, COVID. Blessing. I worked on my business because I wasn't at the warehouse for three months. And I knew that Whole Foods was going to be a game changer. And so I wrote to the buyer. Two weeks later, wrote to the buyer. Had that like, is it the right moment? Is it the right day? Is it the right time? <laughs> and so important because there is a very fine line mm. between being a nag and being p mm. persistent and being a pest. Mm -hmm. So your strategy was an email, no response. Two weeks later, an email, no response. The same email. Does the tone change? Following up on my earlier email, which you've ignored, <laughs> which you don't do. Um, <laughs> What's the tone like? Does the messaging change? Are you trying a new angle or are you just simply cutting and pasting and resending? I always check in with how I'm feeling. I don't write it feeling desperate. I write it feeling empowered and knowing you want my brand. I know that my brand belongs in your store. And so it is a very short one sentence with, with the, the original underneath it. So third email and then I left it. Then three weeks later, the buyer wrote back. I apologize for my delay in getting back to you. And I was like, you've read my presentation. So that is a blessing. Those are the, as you said, the constellation of how things come together. The buyer, who unfortunately is no longer my buyer, has moved on to another category, is a good human. He responded to every email thereafter within 24 hours. 
and he got it. I mean, he was the spice salt buyer. But there are 10,000 people with spice and salt options who are trying to buying for attention. So mm. there, there's an element of persistence, but an element of patience. What had he not replied? Had you thought that one through? Because there was the three emails and then a three-week gap. By this time, you're thinking they're never coming back to me. They hate me. No, I don't think like that. Good. I don't. Let, I don't. Why it's important. Yes, and I don't let the negativity or the doubt creep in. It's like, okay, not the right time. So, of course, he didn't respond originally a year previously. So, timing is also the magic that happens in your pitch. And and Oryx Desert Salt would be a different business had he not responded. But you weren't going to him desperate that if that didn't happen, your entire business was was doomed. It was one avenue of several avenues that were open to you, and this was one that you chose strategically. For so many years, I had intentioned, dreamed, had a goal that this was going to happen. You then don't get an order for quite some time, and then an order suddenly comes through. And it's an order that comes through with very little notice. And you've then got to make a call to say, actually, I need more time. I can't deliver the 10 tons of salt that you need. But again, you've backed yourself on this Mm. and you geared up your factory in anticipation, which is quite a high-risk strategy. It was. In the presentation, I felt that he bought into this beautiful desert salt. I think it was probably the first presentation where I gave the very detailed information for me, the crisis around salt. Table salt is toxic and shouldn't be on shelf. Um, and Himalayan isn't sustainable, and sea salt has got plastic in it. And that was the first time that I shared that information with absolute conviction, because he's a salt buyer. He actually needs to know this, and he actually really needs desert salt on his shelf. And he probably knew it already, <laughs> and you were affirming yeah. something yeah. concerning him, yeah. and you were providing a solution to his problem, which yeah. was, let me give you something that doesn't have all of the bad stuff that we talk about in this email, and I solve your problem, yeah. which is ultimately, I suppose, the best business strategy in the world. It is. So it was five months from the presentation before they told me there would be a listing. And then I still didn't get the purchase order until seven months after that. And we had to send a full 20-foot container of product to a random warehouse (laughs) in the States because we don't supply Whole Foods directly. They gave the mandate to a distributor and then we had to get the purchase order from the distributor. So there was... There was definitely prayer, faith, and, and trust, and a knowing, because I, I felt confident with the buyer. What does it, it take, so, 10 years to become an overnight success? <laughs> That's exactly it. That's Samantha Skyring. You can call her Sam at Oryx Desert Salt. From salt to an indigenous bush, Aspalatus linearis, better known to you as rooibos, or red tea, or bush tea. Anyway, it's a plant indigenous to the Western Cape of South Africa and is widely regarded as a considerably healthier alternative to traditional black teas and coffee. Putting it in bags and exporting those around the world has been big business for generations. But the founders of Boss Tea, an iced tea concept, decided it should move from a commodity to luxury status. They did this about a decade ago and they launched a carefully and beautifully branded product designed to draw attention on the shelf from no matter where you come. It's also got a huge publicity boost in the early days when Sir Alex Ferguson, then at the helm of Manchester United, invested. He found out about it because his son and the founders of Boss Tea were buddies. Well, the Ferguson team is still on the shareholders' register. Now, with nearly half of its sales happening outside of its home market, it's doing rather well, particularly in Europe. And this is where the fun begins. 
Here's Chief Executive Will Battersby. So primary markets now are South Africa. So that's about 60% of our total business. And then 35% of it comes from Europe, with the French market being the biggest, the second being the Netherlands, and then Belgium. And then we've got a, a number of other smaller markets around, a bit in Spain, a bit in Switzerland, a bit in Austria. We've just got a listing now in, in a big Finnish retailer, so we'll be in Finland in a few months. And we're picking up some nice distribution outside of the core Western European markets. In fact, our biggest customer last year was actually Ukraine. They came on board with a really big order from one of their premium retailers. They were unable to get supply of, of beverages from, I guess, where they would normally get it in the East and they needed to go West and uh, they found us. So that's actually been our biggest new customer last year, which was a surprise. We also have business out of the US through Amazon. So that's ticking over really nicely. And um, we were listed in some retailers, but through our restructure, we were only available in the US online through Amazon. And then about 18 months ago, we launched into Australia. So we're now, we, we're in about 400 independent stores. Harris Farms is a big natural organic retailer based in New South Wales and in Sydney. That's doing really well for us. And we've just shipped a container of cans that left the factory that's headed over to Woolworths, which is the big retailer in Australia. And we're talking to another big retailer in New Zealand. So we should have New Zealand, Australia up and running with a nice big retail listing. And then it's the UK. So we've, we've partnered with a team there called Go to Grocery, who part of a bigger group called Suta International, mostly pharmaceutical brands, but they've got a food and beverage portfolio that, they've, that they're growing. And we're going to fit into that portfolio. And they've started selling us into retail. And we're doing what we did before in, in South Africa. We've got uh, a container of bright yellow umbrellas and uh, bright stands and giraffe outfits all getting packed and should be shipped off to the UK to launch for summer. So UK summer is only about three days, so we have to make it on time. Otherwise, we might miss it. But yeah, we're very excited about it. The UK is it's not a huge iced tea market, but it is really big in, in premium beverages. You only need to walk on the streets and check into a Sainsbury's or a Tesco or a Harrods or a Selfridges to see that there's a, a big trend towards health. And we're hoping to pick up on that in the UK. So I guess you can see sort of Europe is, is a primary focus for us. Western Europe more so up until now, but we are seeing some interest from, from Eastern Europe. Sometimes we find it's a bit easier actually to go into less competitive markets. It's not something that you'd see in an MBA where you kind of work out the GDP per capita and the size of the biggest markets out there. You generally go to those markets first. We did that in Switzerland. We actually went to Switzerland because it's a high GDP, big iced tea market. It didn't really work. They don't drink iced tea in a can. They actually drink it differently and it's quite cheap in the supermarket. So yeah, which is why I guess some, some of the Eastern European countries, we've had a bit more interest. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of experimentation. You make assumptions, you can do your studies, but only once you're really in market can you truly tell whether or not a premium product in the sea of similar but completely different products, whether it'll fly or not. Exactly, 100%. And sometimes it's not your brand that's the problem. It's potentially the distributor or the route to market or the channel that they've put it in. So we've been in Australia three times before over the last 10 years with distributors that claimed to sell us into the right channel, but it wasn't the right channel. It was more cheaper discounting type of stores. And that's not where a boss consumer is, going, is coming in. A boss consumer is looking for a healthier alternative to the norm and they're prepared to pay a little bit more for it. They're intrigued by the color and the packaging. And once they read the backstory and learn about the fact that it's rooibos and it's only from South Africa and it's healthier, that's that's how we get people in. So 
Yes, we've made some errors going in with the wrong partners into the wrong channels, but you're right. You have to have some products on the ground to, to trial it. And you need to make some calculated bets as to where you're going to put your marketing efforts because the two go together, you know, physical distribution and what we call a sort of physical availability and mental availability. It's from Byron Sharp's book, How Brands Grow. It's a great book. If you haven't read it, you should get it. He's got number one and number two. But all the brands you talk about now should read, you know, that that's a classic. So you need those two to go in, in step together, physical availability, but you also need people to be aware of the products. Otherwise, you can be aware and you can't buy it or it's available, but people don't actually know it's, it's there. Do you always go into market with local distributors and they then advise and direct your product? Or have you gone directly yourselves to big brands, whether they be the big supermarket chains or even exclusive supermarket chains like the Selfridges and the Harrods of the world? We have gone direct. So when we first launched in Paris and in France and in Amsterdam, we went direct. Even in the US, we went direct. So we we had those initial conversations with Cup for it wasn't me at the time. You need to, to make sure you got someone who can speak French and kind of translate the message. Whole Foods, we pitched directly to them. We pitched to most of the bigger reads. We pitched to Woolworths in, in Australia. I went over there last year and, and met them. So we yeah, we have met them directly. That is always the best way to get your message across is to have those bigger meetings directly. As much as an intermediary can help maintain and build in their network, some of those big Big conversations need to happen between brand owner and, and customer. Otherwise, it gets a little bit lost in translation. So all your guys that you spoke about now, Field Bar, Oryx, they've all done that in a similar way. So, How did you get listed at Amazon? Because the title of this particular podcast is how to get listed at Harrods or at Whole Foods or at Woolworths in Australia. But let's do yours on how to get listed on Amazon. How do you go about it? What is the practical step you need to take to Hey, Jeff, I've got a can of drink you should try. That would be nice. But I'm sure it's a bit more complicated than that. It is. So the US was the first Amazon platform that we got listed on. At the time, for a South African brand, you needed to have a, a US entity. So you, you, you had to trade into Amazon through a US business. And luckily, we had set up one. Amazon is next level complicated. You need to find an Amazon expert to run it for you. And you can find very, very good third parties contractors that can help you get set up but yeah first of all it's really the paperwork so the ownership of the business the structure they need to know that you're the manufacturer you're not an intermediary selling it and then you need to decide how you want to get it distributed so are you going to send it straight to the consumer that orders through amazon or are you going to send it into the fba warehouses we get amazon to pick it up from one location in the country in the u.s so we store it in a bulk warehouse in texas and amazon come and collect it and then they send it out to their 20 30 40 50 distribution centers and they manage that entire process there are some brands that deliver directly into amazon from south africa that's a little bit more complicated. You need to get your forecasting extremely accurate because the way Amazon works is your availability impacts your algorithm and impacts your rating. And the higher your availability, the higher your consumer ratings on your products, the more you get pushed up, Yeah, the higher kind of Amazon sort of treats you and more people see your product, the more sales you get. The other thing with Amazon is time really counts. You need to start early. You can't just jump onto Amazon and expect $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 sales. Those algorithms build over time. So the sooner you can get it listed and available, the better. The really good news is for South Africans, this changed very recently, but as a South African business, you can now register on Amazon in the US. So you can have a South African entity and you can register there. Amazon US will pay 
into bank accounts in Europe and in the US and across the world, but they never they would never transact into South Africa. So for South African brands, access into the biggest consumer market in the world, it's it's there. It just you just need to find an expert because it's quite it's quite daunting. Will Battersby at Boss Brands, three times in and out of Australia. Oh, that's a combination of persistence and total belief in the product you've ever seen. Sometimes, however, you have to park your ego and your belief in your product because not every product is suited to being listed in a posh store. Some are just too complicated and variable. So what if you're producing a product line of 100 variations of your core offering? Carrying stock is a nightmare, certainly a huge nightmare, particularly if you're trying to run a business from the distance. Adrian Hewlett invested heavily in Sealand, it happened as COVID started, and as you will hear, he was a little naive at first about how much money it was going to take to turn a great product created by two serious surfers using only materials that could be upcycled, such as used sailcloth, old advertising hoardings, and similar materials used in supermarket marketing that usually end up in landfill. So they created a most extraordinary line of bags from Duffel bags to toilet bags to backpacks to computer bags. Any bag you can think of is made by Sealand using these materials that would otherwise be thrown away. After telling stories on how and why you should be aiming for the stars and getting your product onto the shelves of posh stores, a cautionary tale from Sealand's Adrian Hewlett on why not all brands are destined for the shop shelves of the world's greatest retailers and why sometimes you just need to pull back in order to go forward. The interesting part of our business, which took me, I would say, three years to realize was a problem, was in fact our wholesale business and principally our international wholesale business. It was at a top line, very attractive, but a bottom line, a killer. And I guess that was the big learning. Because you've got a range of probably, I'm guessing, 100 designs of different bags, different formats, different sizes, different patterns, different color schemes. You've got at least 100 variations on the theme of bag. Correct, correct. You know, if I'm going to delve into where the, the problem in this business was. So one is I got involved in this business in the midst of COVID. Probably not the best time to get involved in an industry that you know very little about. And so hugely challenging. And obviously then at that point, if I'm honest with myself, I was chasing turnover. And you know, the old saying that, is it turnover is vanity? I'm sure you have a better version of that, but the, the bottom line is... Cash is king, turnover is valid. There we go, there we go. Cash flow is king or something, something like that. Lines, yeah. But the point is, I was looking to bring revenue into the business, and sometimes that's revenue at cost. But what I was not always doing is looking at the unit economics of what is the net extraction that I'm making from my different channels. Now, my different channels, as I said, was corporate gifting, our own retail, wholesale in South Africa, and international wholesale. And the, some of that international wholesale was going into very top-end stores. In fact, nearly all of it. Selfridges, Nordstrom's, Bloomingdale's, Liberty of London, Mr. Porter, really, really high-end stores in the UK and in the US. And they represented over 50% of our top-line revenue. So now if you can you imagine... Put on that sales channel. Now, you know, you, it's very high risk to cut back on it. It's high risk, but also what you do is you kid yourself into not checking what the unit economic on a sale to one of those really is. Because you see this 50% of your revenue coming from incredible stores. And the other problem, Bruce, is that let's say I go for dinner one night and I tell someone that I work at Sealand and this is the business I'm involved in and they have spotted that we happen to be stocked at Selfridges. That's what they hone in on. 
So the dinner table conversation is, you must be successful because you are stocked at Felfridges in London and you're a little South African brand. So you kid yourself into thinking that that's good for the business. Until you step away and you go, well, what am I actually making? What was that epiphany for you? The epiphany was Christmas and I was looking at the projected cash flows of this business going over the next six months and they were nowhere. We just never had cash. And I then really decided to deep dive every single channel that we're involved in. What is the amount of money that I'm making and how long does it take me to get the cash out of that environment? And what I realized, and this is, this is my kind of warning to brands out there, is if you're going to undertake export as a business from South Africa, you don't have massive sector experience in that sector. You don't necessarily have experience in logistics and the murky world that is export. And you don't have a massive war chest of cash and supporting funding. If you're producing a particular flagship wine or a chili oil or a salt, a range of salts, for example, it's a fairly homogenous product. Yes. This is a problem because of the range that you're trying to display, the range that you want to make available because people go online and they say, you make a toilet bag, you also make a computer bag, you also make a tog bag. I want all three of those, but Selbridges is only carrying one or two of those. Correct. It becomes a tough conversation. It becomes a tough conversation. The other problem that you also have is when you have a broad range of products like we do, and you have a one-to-one discussion with the buyer at Selfridges, the buyer speaks to me as the, the CEO, and I'm passionate about the business, and I tell the story, and the buyer goes, I get it, I love it, I want it. So I'm going to put an opening buy in with you and I'm going to put your products into my stores. That same buyer is not the same person who's responsible for ensuring the sell-through in that store. Now, if you're sitting in Cape Town and you're not flying to London and training the sales staff on the floor of Selfridges and 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 merchandising merchandising properly, what actually ends up happening is that the buyer had a great idea but your bag is sitting in the far corner of Selfridges, which is a big store, by the way. Yes. And it's not selling. With luggage. With luggage, of which there's a lot of other luggage and there's a lot of other choice. And so ultimately what happens is you don't get the sell-through that you need. That same buyer is now going to come back to you a few months later saying, Adrian, I'm afraid I need a discount. And, and suddenly you find yourself in a situation where you're not getting the sell-through that the buyer or yourself thought you were getting. And you're probably ending up having to credit some of the cash that you thought you'd sold in the first place. Summarize for me then three big lessons on when you think you've got the world's greatest product, you want to put it into these global flagship stores, whether it be Bloomingdale's or whether it be Selfridges or Harrods or any one of these stores, David Jones in Australia. What are the three things you need to consider before you even send one sample off? So I think the biggest thing is you need to have first succeeded in your home market. That's the biggest thing for me is Thinking that you can conquer another market before you truly have conquered your own market, it's ego. It's a mistake. So that's the first thing is really build success in South Africa, which, by the way, is a big enough market to do that. Secondly is be very specific about where you're going to go. In our case, we went to Selfridges, Liberty, Mr. Porter, Nordstrom, Bloomingdale's. That's five massive retailers who between them have thousands of outlets. We should have just picked one or two and then try and win with the brand in that environment and ideally have feet on the ground who work for you directly to promote the business and the brand in that environment. Adrian Hewlett with that cautionary tale at Sealand. 
Well, I promised you a competition and a prize, did I not? And as this is episode eight and the end of the first series of Genius, hopefully there will be many more. Let's test your knowledge. I've got a hamper of products mentioned in this episode. I've got a sealant bag. I've got a field bar, some Oryx Desert Salt, some Scully Cider, some Boss Tea, and a voucher for island-style sorbet. There is a catch. You or someone who cares about you needs to be able to pick up this big hamper from me, either in Johannesburg or Cape Town. Logistically, I simply cannot get it anywhere else. So I'm sorry, there are some T's and C's here. But answer the question. Of all of the products mentioned in this episode, the owner of which will not be seeking a listing at Harrods or any other top store in the near future. Also, why? And tell me where you live and why you deserve this hamper. You can drop me a mail to info at brucewhitfield.com. Info at brucewhitfield.com. And I will do a lucky draw. And provided you can collect in Cape Town or Johannesburg, I will be calling you to collect. Thanks for listening. Bruce Whitfield's Genius Podcast in partnership with Lexus. Subscribe now to your favorite podcast app. Remember, you can see me experience amazing in the brand new Lexus RX350 by clicking on the link in the blurb of this episode. Go on. You know you want to.